Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact or donate. If you're enjoying the podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review, or just spread the word. It will help us reach more listeners. Thank you. Previous guests on the podcast have included Alan Hirsch, Curtis Sargent, and Neil Cole. But today's guest is David Garrison. David is a pioneer in the understanding of church planting movements among unreached people groups. He is the author of several books, including Church Planting Movements and A Wind in the House of Islam. He now serves as executive director of Global Gates, a ministry seeking to reach the ends of the earth through global gateway cities. We have a fantastic conversation that I'm sure you'll enjoy. Here he is. This episode is brought to you by All Nations Kansas City. Have you ever felt wholly discontent that one-third of the world doesn't know Jesus, that the church as we know it won't reach all peoples on earth, and that it's hard to find ways to use your gifts for the kingdom of God? Well, you're not alone. We feel it too. With 30 years of experience igniting movements to Jesus around the world, committed to following the lead of the Holy Spirit, All Nations has gifted trainers and coaches with time in the trenches. Do you want to make disciples in hard places? Do you want to join a like-minded community? Are you tired of compromising for the status quo? Then join us on the leading edge. Go to allnations.us to learn more and to sign up for Summer CPX. CPX, or Church Planting Experience, is a three-week immersion in Kansas City that will equip you to ignite church planting movements among the neglected peoples of the earth. Join us June 5th through the 25th. This podcast is done in association with the MX Platform and 100M Publishing. The MX Platform is a space for any disciple to be resourced and equipped to release movement within your context. So whether you lead your family, a small group, or microchurch, or you're a planter or a pastor, you could find tools, resources, and training to help release potential within yourself and context. 100M Publishing publishes books by authors and thought leaders with new insight about movement DNA, discipleship, leadership, and movement dynamics. To learn more about these books and to check out the resources and training available, visit the mxplatform.com. Now on to the show. David, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited for you to be here. So welcome. Thank, thank you, Joshua. Great to be with you. Yeah, it's good. I, you know, I don't think I've ever heard your story of how you got into missions in the, in the first place. So I'd love to hear uh, how you got into missions. 
You know, uh, everybody has a different pathway and I'd always heard, you know, if you're not called into missions, then, um, you know, you're not going to be a missionary. It's really not for you. Mm. It's a special thing. And, and yet I grew up in a, a home, good Christian home in South Arkansas. My pastor was a missionary kid, uh, mm. preached uh, with a lot of illustrations from life on the mission field. And I was just always involved in church, but um, it wasn't until uh, I was in college, my sophomore year, I was an exchange student in Japan. Mm. I'd always had this hunger to, to, to see the bigger picture of the world. And yeah. while I was there, I met my first, uh, what were called missionary journeymen, two-year missionaries working, uh, serving with the Southern Baptist Foreign Mission Board, it was called then. Mm-hmm. And uh, I loved that idea, sort of like model on the Peace Corps, but uh, under uh, a Christian uh, banner. And um, so I began planning then. Uh, I wasn't, I didn't feel called to missions, mm. but I was called into the ministry. And so I thought I can give two years. And so uh, I went back, married my high school sweetheart. And we set out uh, after uh, finishing seminary in 1982, went to Hong Kong and spent two years um, there serving as missionary journeyman. I think if you had asked me six months into that time um, what I thought of missions, I'd say, hey, look, I'll, I'll pay you. I'll borrow money to go home. Yeah. I was in culture shock and I was really reeling from it. And all of the cracks in my own life were exposed and uh, it's pretty raw, but uh, something happened about mm. six or seven months in uh, God began to break through the Holy spirit began to be released into areas of our life that had not uh, really been exposed to his yeah. Lordship, I think, and began to see him really go to work and people coming to Christ and a sort of a spiritual awakening taking place there. And, so it was around that time we turned to God and said, would you let us do this for the rest of our lives? Wow. And uh, he graciously said, yes. <laughs> and so we began then to say, this is where we want to pour our lives in. And it's been a, just a, an amazing adventure ever since. Mm. No regrets. If I had a, a dozen lives to live over, <laughs> I just deploy them out a dozen different places around the world because it's it's really been a an awesome adventure with God. Yeah. And how do you, how do you stick with that as you're walking through your life and you're living in different places? Um, you know, what is that identity and calling for you that you can actually have this plumb line that you can engage, uh, in different areas around the world and different ministries? Uh, what does that look like for you? <laughs> it looks like a big mystery, Joshua. Uh, yeah, a mystery and an adventure. Um, we always talk about having our hands open, uh, keeping our hands open. We've had several times when we have uh, accumulated things here in the States, uh, being yeah. on staff with the International Mission Board, um, and uh, at various points in our life, feeling called to get back overseas. And we would sell everything we had and, and take off again overseas. And and, you know, that that's sort of the way it is. You know, if you keep your hands open, uh, God puts wonderful things in them and takes them away and puts other wonderful things in yeah. them. And so we've never felt deprived in, in that sense. Uh, we've just been blessed far beyond uh, anything we could imagine or deserve. Um, but there's this verse that, that really grabbed me a few years ago. It's in 1 John 3, 2. Uh, it says, Beloved, now we're the children of God. Mm. And it does not yet appear what shall be, but we know that when Christ will appear, we will be like him. Hmm. 
And that verse is like the Holy Spirit kept impressing it on my life, even without looking it up. It was like it was echoing in my subconscious. And what I came to see was that really was a defining verse in many ways for someone, especially who ends up living in a lot of different places, engaging a lot of different cultures. Because what it says is, beloved, we're the children of God. That's the beginning point. That's the foundation. And when you have that, that personal relationship with God through Christ, it gives you a foundation that allows you to go into that middle section of that passage, which is, Mm. and it does not yet appear what shall be. That's Mm. the mystery, the unknown, the, uh, the open horizons, the, the blank uh, canvas. Yeah. But it ends with, but we know when Christ will appear, we will be like him, but we will see him as he Mm. is. And that gives you that assurance, that hope, that even though you're going to go through some difficult times, certainly some suffering, some trials, some tragedies and disappointments, uh, you know how the story ends. Yeah. Uh, it ends with Jesus. Everything will be reconciled in him. And so that gives you the confidence to move on. And for us, it's meant not being afraid to turn the page uh, on one um, period of our life uh, to go into another period of life with unknowns and with yeah. no uh, clear bearing apart from the fact that we're beloved by Christ, we're part of his family, and someday we'll be like him. He'll he'll solve all the problems that we faced in the intervening years. Yeah, I, I was, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was uh, coaching some church leaders, and uh, one of the things that w- we started talking about, we started talking about team leadership, and when we have team leadership, one of the things that we have to be secure in is our identity and our calling and that we are actually known as a beloved child of God. Um, And I had so many of those leaders that were on the call saying, I don't know that I'm a beloved child of God. Like, I'm not secure in that. And it's really, you know, I've found that, especially in the West, there they're in ministry or they're doing things, but they're not rooted and grounded in that belovedness that you uh, have laid out there. Um, and it s- seems to be really crucial and a key aspect for people to be able to, su- to sustain through the, the liminal spaces, the unknown of life when we're out in the deserts so that we could pursue after the hope. Uh, that Jesus has has given us, saying that He is going to reconcile all things, and we know the ending of the story. Um, but you're right; it is that rootedness, and I love that. You know, Jesus, when He first set out on ministry, uh, He heard from the Father, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." Right, mm-hmm. and so He knew who He was, where He came from, uh, where He was going, uh, as He was empowered by the Holy Spirit there as well. Um, so that was the, that's the key. And so I love that you just laid that out. I've been, I've been walking through this and wrestling with this as well, that what is our security in our identity and calling? Um, and I think you just, you hit the nail on the head. I think that was it. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as they say, um, when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, once you're born into God's family, it doesn't make you perfect, but, uh, but you're now in the family. And you can't be unborn. And there is that assurance. You know when you failed. You know when you've messed up. You know when you've strayed away or sought your own path. But nonetheless, you're still that child of God. Even a prodigal child is still a child. (laughs) And so we we have that assurance and and, and that that hope that someday 
everything will be made right and including us yeah uh, that it'll all be straightened out yeah uh, you've done a lot of uh, writing, uh, researching church planning movements. I mean, you literally wrote the book on church planning movements. Uh, and, you know, that your first booklet was a really key instrument in uh, calling my wife to the field. Mm-hmm. Um, of, she knew that she was called into missions. But after reading uh, your, your book, she was like, this is it. This is what I want to give my life to is to go mm-hmm. out, church plants among the least reach and see uh, movements of, of churches uh, happen among the least reach. And, you know, th- your book, when I read it, it got me really excited and say, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to go. Um, as you've been been looking at church planting movements and researching and, and writing, what is what surprises you um, in the middle of, of church planting movements? What What surprises you? Well, they are a surprise, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, they are. Um, yeah. You know, we launched uh, into the, uh, the what's now called the 1040 window that uh, uh, what Jesus called the ends of the earth uh, with Southern Baptist way back in 1985, I think, was when the Foreign Mission Board sent its first uh, tent makers into China. And then in 1987, uh, Bill and Susan Smith were our first strategy coordinators. We call them non-residential missionaries, yeah. followed by Mike Stroop and a and now there's there's hundreds and thousands of them really around the world engaging unreached people groups. We went after unreached people groups because it was the right thing to do uh, in, in the yeah. sense that Jesus commanded us <laughs> to make disciples of all nations. And so it was it was no longer a thing of, OK, Lord, we'll go there if you'll just bring these nations to see the importance of opening up to missionaries. Yeah. And uh, so the initial step of faith for us was. Um, just deploying missionaries, even if they couldn't live in a country, and then watching to see how when we stepped out in faith, God met us there, opened doors. We found that no place was closed to the gospel. It was just closed to to Westerners in many yeah. cases. And then increasingly, um, God would just amaze us. He would raise the bar. I think the initial bar we had was, let us just get an organization that will allow us to engage an unreached people group, even if we can't live there. That bar was met. And then let us get these people evangelized. Let's find ways to get the gospel in. Well, that that bar was raised and, and that became a reality. Next was, Lord, let us plant a beachhead church, just one yeah. church in that country among that people. And, and we will have reached our goal. And that was not only met, but we turned around and those churches were starting to multiply. And God raised the bar up exponentially <laughs> higher and said, you know, what eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man, what God has prepared for those who love him. And so the whole thing was an amazing um, surprise, honestly, but it's a part of that uh, God revealing in the process that this is his mission. Yeah. And if we're willing to step out in faith uh, against the logic of our own paradigms, the limitations of our mental way of thinking. For example, we thought if a missionary can't live in a country, he can't be a missionary in that country. And mm-hmm. God said, it's not about the missionary. It's not about you getting a visa. It's about that people hearing the gospel. Mm-hmm. And when we acknowledge that stepped out in faith and God began to open doors and make things happen. And so mm-hmm. to me, that's been the great, uh, uh, wonderful uh, revelation in this process is that when we obey God, stepping out in faith, he does things far beyond anything we could imagine. Yeah. Because that's what he's wanted to do all along. He's just been waiting on us <laughs> to, to catch up with him. Yeah. 
Uh, what are the, some of the the essentials that you've seen um, as far as healthy reproducing churches? What what makes something healthy? Jesus makes something healthy. I mean, that you know, you've heard those those yeah. silly little illustrations that the pastor says, you know, what's small and brown has a bushy tail and eats nuts and lives in a tree, and the little kid says. I know the answer must be Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel to me. Uh, <laughs> it can sound flippant and dismissive to say right. Jesus is the yeah. answer, but he really is the answer. Yeah. The church is the body of Christ. And we didn't uh, make that identification. Christ made that identification. Yeah. And uh, it comes with uh, the awareness of the early church that they were the body of Christ. He was the head. They were the body. The body is diverse. But the thing that defines it, the thing that directs it, the thing that... Um, that is the sine qua non. I like that term. It means without which it is not. Hmm. Uh, it's the irreducible essence is, is it continuing what Jesus did, taught, believed, practiced in his own ministry? Yeah. If it is, it's a good church. Yeah. If it isn't, it's a deficient church. It may still be a church in some right. sense, but something's missing. Hmm. So that's what we, we come back to. We've seen a lot of yeah. different expressions. I know the fivefold ministry is, or fivefold ecclesiology is one approach. Yeah. Uh, reformed ecclesiology is an approach. Yeah. Uh, I've got, we do something, we, we've done something over the years called a handy guide to healthy church, hmm. which we use the hand as a mnemonic. It's a memory device yeah. to teach uh, five purposes of a church and four marks of maturity and three servant leaders and two tracks of authority and one holy essence, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hmm. But we use that, uh, the hand simply as a tool, because yeah. in India, we found that giving people a book or using a PowerPoint, uh, not all of them had access to reproduce that, but almost everybody either had a hand or they, they could find one somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and they could look at that hand and they could remember these five, four, three, two, one essential elements. Hmm. But it really does boil down to that one thing. Yeah. Is it continuing to do what Jesus did, what Jesus taught, what mm. Jesus practiced? And if so, then that's its measure of healthiness. Yeah, I, I think that's beautiful. And we always need to get back to Jesus. And that should be that should be our plumb line. That should be the thing that we get back to always. And, you know, if we don't reflect Jesus, if we don't embody Jesus, it's it's going to fail. Right. That's Amen. why. Well, you know, I, let me, I'll, I'll throw a, a disclaimer there or a, a disagreement, a, a gentle disagreement. It can succeed without being like Jesus. It can, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes yeah. as you're just listening to it's, this. It depends on our definition of success, yeah, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. It can look very successful. And some of the most, quote unquote, successful churches in yeah. America today are just not very Christ-like. Yeah. You know, whether they're chasing after a prosperity uh, uh quid pro quo, you know, if I follow yeah. Jesus, he'll make me rich, or whether they're following some sort of a doctrinal formula that if I just follow these little uh, rules, uh, then everything's going to be all right. Yeah. And and really, it's about, it's about Christ in us, the only hope of glory, mm. and uh, seeing him multiplied in our lives, in our community, and throughout the world. Yeah. You know, as you've been been looking through uh, church planning movements and now in your work with Global Gates, as you're looking at unreached people groups and in, in global gateway cities and, and reaching unreached people groups there, have you uh, been able to to see as we start to reach a, a people group, 
have you ever been able to see uh, ethnically uh, diverse uh, churches um, and healthy churches? And what does that look like as we enter into a people group and we reach that? And how does it start to reflect the global body of Christ? Yeah, it really it really reflects the kingdom of God. Yeah. And so for those who say, you know, this idea of a people group focus is is unbiblical. It, it really defies the, the notion in the gospel that there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, but we're all one in Christ. I really resonate with that. I've been involved in international churches, and I love, I love the diversity of the body of Christ all gathered together. Yeah. It just so happens lost people don't, they don't <laughs> respond the same way to that. And really, the people group focus is an effort to meet lost people where they are with the gospel, yeah. with the understanding that its transformative power will transform their perspective on themselves, their own people group, and their relationship to the broader kingdom yeah. of God. If it doesn't, then it's deficient because it's falling short, really, of that Christ mm-hmm. ideal. But you got to start where they are. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean you can't plant a multi-ethnic church in a multi-ethnic city and see all these different people come to it. But something is there's something lost there as well. Hmm. Uh, you can have the uh, the facade or the impression or the illusion of success because you've got a lot of people in your church, but maybe they're all worshiping. You know, what language are they worshiping in? Yeah. In some cases, they're all worshiping in English because that's the trade language. Yeah. And the question is, are you really reaching the various people groups? in that city if they have to be able to worship in english yeah and and that's that's again is you can't expect lost people to climb the mountains and jump over the the hurdles Mm. to come to the gospel if we're not as believers whose names are written in the lamb's book of life are not willing to climb those mountains jump over those hurdles learn those languages um, infuse the gospel into their cultures so Mm. it's it's not an either or but there's implications for having a multi-ethnic church versus having multiplying uh, indigenous churches within various different yeah. uh, language communities. Yeah, Does that make I sense? think yeah, that makes sense. And I think that as we're we're walking in that road and in, in those churches, that we get to different stages of repentance as well, right? Mm-hmm. You, you have that first repentance of saying, you know. Hey, I need life with Jesus. So I'm going to turn and start to walk down the Jesus road. And then you continuing having that metanoia moments in your life of paradigm shifts of saying, oh, God is actually a missionary God and he loves all peoples of the the earth. So I need to to change my perspective and start to engage other peoples and and those sort of things as we walk through. Uh, different stages of repentance. I, I love that there is maturity in that, that we could actually start to have those those moments throughout our life as we get to be formed more like Christ. Uh, we're going to have those metanoia moments and say, yes, this is actually his heart yeah. and I want to engage his heart. In the deep south, we call those come to Jesus moments, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and that's really what they are. We we have one of the so many missionaries that I, I've come to know and admire over the years. One of them, who serves with Global Gates in a, a high security context, so I won't say too much about it. But his background is uh, Armenian. He was raised yeah. as a, a missionary kid. Parents were yeah. missionaries uh, in Europe, and uh, he rebelled. You know, he got in those teenage years, didn't want to have anything to do with it, 
and uh, went his own way. And then he learned the story of his uh, grandfather, who, as an Armenian, uh, a young boy, watched his his own father being crucified, literally crucified, nailed to a cross, and uh, and died as a part of the uh, Armenian genocide mm. back in 1915, as uh, the Armenians were driven out of Turkey. And when this uh, young rebellious teenager heard this story of his own grandfather and great grandfather and what had happened to them, mm. it so broke his heart that he repented. He had a metanoia word yeah. for repentance in Greek. He had to come to Jesus. He repented and came to Jesus and found himself called to be a missionary to Muslims. Mm. That's not natural. That's not logical. That's not normal. That's a come to Jesus experience. And this uh, dear brother is now serving in the Muslim world and wow. uh, sharing the gospel with uh, with Muslims. And I, when I hear that story, when I, I know that brother and mm. his family that he's raising there, the price he he's paying, knowing with his eyes wide open, he's not naive. He's seen it happen in his own family. Yeah. And that's compelled him to take the gospel to a people who uh, he would have every reason to uh, to hate or despise or want to uh, see ill of. And yet yeah. his response is to want to share the love of Jesus with him. Uh, wow. That's such a, a great come to Jesus moment that saying, you know, that's his heart and to engage that, you know, you wrote a lot about the movements of Muslims coming to Christ uh, in a window in the house of Islam. And, you know, as my wife and I read that book and we were living in the Middle East. Um, we were really, it gave us hope that there was, that Muslims were turning, coming to Christ and we can engage that. Um, you know, I, I just remember, I think it was 2015, we had a gathering in our city and we had a bunch of people visiting uh, Syrian refugees and we were just telling story. We, that after the gathering, we had uh, a day where we we invited some long-term workers in the region to come and pray over us. And, and we were just telling the stories of the last few days. And, you know, we saw a lot of openness to Jesus uh, during those visits. And I, I just remember I had two, two workers that have been in the Middle East for 20 years, and they were sitting next to me, and they turned to each other, and they said, we've been praying for this for 20 years like they were they were hitting the ground hard they were breaking up that yeah. hard ground in the middle east and praying for 20 years that they would start to see some of this fruits and this openness to Jesus and it was happening what is happening among muslims uh right now today as they <laughs> the i mean i know that's a broad question so you could it's narrow, a great question. Narrow, but i i'm so I just love, I mean, I just love my Muslims, uh, followers of Jesus Amen. that have found him. And I just want to engage that. I just, and give people hope. There's so many people that hear bad news when it comes to the Muslim world, but there's actually some good news in the midst of yeah. uh, of it as well. Yeah, the Muslim world, you know, is so big, so vast, about yeah. 23, 24% of the world's population, that almost anything you say about the Muslim world is true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> somewhere, yeah. right? Somewhere. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the reasons in, in my book, A Wind in the House of Islam, I, I broke it up into these nine rooms in the House of Islam, because at least then you get a sense of 
North Africa being a geocultural zone and West yeah. Africa having its own dynamics, because it's sort of even today, you can you can you can look at the Muslim world in that regard and see what's happening in that arena of Indo Indo Malaysia, for example, yeah. where there's shared economics and history and language and so forth. And so what we do see is that there's a lot of ferment in the Muslim world, a lot of uh, it's a yeasty time, a lot of stuff yeah. bubbling up. Um, uh, it's amazing how fast things change in the Muslim world. Yeah. Um, I was just reading yesterday, one of our uh, Global Gates missionaries wor who works with uh, Yemenis uh, here in, uh, in the United States, uh, a big diaspora population here in the West. One of the neat things about the Global Gates ministry is that they we're working with uh, communities in Global Gateway cities here in the West, in New York, Detroit, uh, Los Angeles, uh, Vancouver, and so forth. And the communities we're working with are in daily contact with their mm. family and networks back on the other side wow. of the world in their home countries. So we can literally hear hear what's going on there. Mm. And this uh, Global Gates missionary was sharing that uh, the Yemenis that he works with said that faith is just dying in Yemen right now, uh, mm. the, the Islamic faith for many, yeah. many uh, Muslims there. They've just seen it being used as the justification for killing yeah and it's used by both sides by you know houthi rebels and by the uh the, the government the loyalists and then by the saudis who are fueling one side and the iranians the other and they're seeing that that religion that had been their defining uh cultural characteristic has led them into ceaseless conflicts and wars and many of them are are just saying you know i no longer believe what I believed growing up. Now, what's filling the void? Because uh, man is fundamentally. Uh, this is I got this from someone in graduate school. Is <laughs> homo religiosus? Man is religious man. Wow. At our essence, we have yeah. a spiritual capacity, and so we're drawn to something. And uh, yep. some are, are drawn to atheism, and uh, some are drawn to cynicism and depression. Some are being drawn to faith in Jesus Christ. They're looking for alternatives. Yep. And that's why it's so important in these war-torn areas that the Christian gospel, the Christian message, and the Christian, uh, the life of Jesus uh, be there. Yeah. Uh, because what Jesus would do is he would minister in those situations as well as share a gospel of eternal salvation. And, and, and it's important for us to, to have that alternative as people's lives are challenged. Now, Yemen is not the story everywhere, but it's a story in too many places. Yeah, it is. We've seen it in Syria. We've seen it in Iraq. We've seen it uh, in the Palestinian uh, conflicts. And, uh, you know, it's it's a part of, uh, it's certainly going on in Libya today, where it's just in turmoil and chaos. And so there's a lot of that going on in the Muslim world, a lot of uh, disenchantment. Um, I think someone said one time, the, uh, the greatest tragedy in life is not to... Uh, not realize your dream, but it's to have your dream realized and realize it was a bad dream. Hmm. And so for many Muslims, you know, for generations, they yearned for uh, the yoke of uh, colonialism to be broken and the shackles, you know, of Western domination to be uh, removed. And then to have an Islamic state was going to be the solution. And for so many now living in these Islamic um, countries, they're finding oppression, they're finding a lack of freedom. Uh, no freedom of conscience. And um, 
as a result, many of them are now are, are looking elsewhere. And the great thing is we live in a day today when uh, through uh, diaspora populations, we're living in the midst of the greatest global migration of people yeah. in human history, over 65 million people on the move around the world. And so everyone has family somewhere who's hearing a message and getting access to the gospel, and they're communicating it back to their, their homelands. And of course, with the internet and with the satellite television, radio, podcast, these things are going uh, global, yeah. and it's making it more difficult for repressive governments to keep their people in check. Yeah, yeah that's true. And, but, you know, God has, you know, from the beginning, from Abram all the way through, used migration uh, for right. the blessing of nations and so that we could actually see that happen. Um, you know, for for you, what are some exciting things to see in that migration of, even though most of it is coming through, a lot of it is coming through difficult, horrible situations, mm-hmm. um, but God can use those things uh, for good and his glory. Um, you know, what are you seeing with Global Gates as migrants are coming around the world. What what do you love about diaspora ministry? Well, Joshua, you know, since way back in the, the 1980s, we've, we felt a calling to the ends of the earth. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, um, the idea of being um, assigned to something in North America just did not appeal to <laughs> us. It was just not our thing. You know, we love being a part of what God was doing overseas and spent 31 years in uh, various roles with the International Mission Board. But the thing that, that amazed us when we, we were uh, in an assignment here in, uh, in North America, and I received a call from the co-founders of Global Gates, of Brad Wall and Chris Clayman, saying, look, uh, we've seen something. We were both missionaries. They were both missionaries uh, to the ends of the earth, one to yeah. Indonesia and Malaysia, the other one to Mali, West Africa. Wow. And they said, but we found here that we have access to these people like we never had overseas. Hmm. And they are staying connected with their homelands uh, in ways that we cannot. You know, they can speak the language, the culture. They're considered to be um, people of influence because they've come to America, mm-hmm. these diaspora communities, even though we look at them and say, man, these guys are just struggling to keep their head above water. Back home, they're regarded as those rich American immigrants. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so they have a voice. And mm. um, so the uh, Chris and Brad uh, convinced my wife, Sonia, and me to come to New York and just see for ourselves. And we did some prayer walking through various congested neighborhoods in Jackson Heights and up in Harlem, little Africa where there's 100,000 West African Muslims. Wow. And uh, in Jackson Heights, where there's over 200 languages spoken in that one uh, neighborhood of, of, uh, of Queens. And uh, what we found was not only were these people in these self-contained little um, uh, ethnic enclaves, but they were literally on their phone, on WhatsApp, on Skype. They were staying in touch with their homelands. Uh, we had Tibetan Buddhists. There were several thousand of them there in Queens. Mm-hmm. And they were in daily contact with uh, family members back in Tibet, as well as up in uh, Darjeeling and uh, up in Dar- um, Northwest uh, India yeah. along the Nepal border. And uh, it's suddenly, we saw this as, as a strategic portal, I guess we would say a a gateway that God had opened up and was opening up. And at the same time this was happening, we were watching evangelical churches flee from the cities 
yeah. moved to the suburbs where the mm-hmm. schools were better, where there was a little safer neighborhoods. And it was like God was moving one direction mm-hmm. and the churches were moving a different direction for different reasons, but for yeah. a different direction. And we, we really saw this as, as a, a valuable um, uh, strategic opportunity that was being underutilized. I don't say ever that it's more strategic than the missionary who goes, you know, to Afghanistan or goes to uh, Uzbekistan or somewhere to the ends of the earth, but it was a missing piece here. And so we felt uh, for a season that God had called us to take the things we had learned through 31 years of international mission work and bring it into uh, Global Gates uh, efforts to uh, mobilize, strengthen, train the churches to be a part of this great commission adventure to the ends of the earth, yeah, right here in our own backyard. Yeah, there's so many different opportunities. I mean, there's, you know, a lot of Afghans coming at the moment. We've just adopted an Afghan family, and, uh, and there are there are challenges, right? You know, we, my yeah. wife and I, speak Arabic. Uh, we don't speak dairy, um, and so it's it's a big challenge. And they don't speak for English at the moment. Um, and so, what are some of those challenges that you have seen? as people try to engage the ends of the earth here in America? Well, that's a big one. You've just nailed it uh, pretty well. It, it's all challenges. You know, yeah. it's, if it was easy, they'd just come step into our <laughs> church and right. be baptized and we'd be on with it. Um, but it is, it's a missionary endeavor. And I think uh, historically our churches in America, not historically, but in the last uh, 50 years or so, we've become an attractional church um, paradigm where we, if we have a really great church, you know, warm, loving people, friendly, uh, great preaching, great teaching, great resources, good facilities, we can expect people to come. If you build it, they will come, you know, that sort of thing. Well, that's not going to be true of these ends of the earth people groups. Muslims will not come. Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs will not come, uh, unless we go to them. So it's really an exciting time in the life of the church. If they will step up to the challenge to be missionary churches. Hmm. And that's really what they have to do uh, with Global Gates. You know, we're, we're there to help. We can't do it all. We don't pretend yeah. to do it all. We're catalysts. Hmm. And so our missionaries, for example, uh, each one is, is assigned to a particular people group and we learn the language. We go yeah. after it. So we spend, you know, let's be honest, we'll spend the rest of our lives <laughs> learning that language. Yeah, exactly. You just get better and better at it. We're doing a growing uh, participator approach yeah. And uh, some of our folks will go and spend time overseas, immersed in the culture mm. there, learning the language. But uh, it's given us great insight into the people we're trying to reach. And then to be able to interpret that people group back to the churches who mm. want to love on them and help them. And then where the churches are helping in many ways, uh, we've adopted uh, uh, some Afghan families here as well. And, uh, you know, the more you get to know those Afghans, the more you find out what are their needs. You see the world yeah. through their eyes. And then the church is like the body of Christ just coming around them, you know, loving them into the kingdom. I tell people sometimes no one ever leads someone to Christ. The body of Christ leads someone to Christ. Mm. And each of us has a role to play because we're a part of the body of Christ. And so Christ himself is redeeming lost people. What we've got to do is get Christ to those people. And that's where the cross-cultural challenge is. Finding Jesus films, finding New Testaments. You need to go on Amazon.com now and Type in yeah. Dari New Testament. You can get you a Dari New Testament. Yeah. Just about any language group that you want, it's available yep. somewhere on, you know, version or something of the Bible. And so it's just a matter of someone caring enough to say, 
I will be the champion for that people uh, on Jesus' behalf, you know, for the yeah. sake of Christ. I will be the liaison between the body of Christ and them. And that's what a missionary is, is really a bridge between the lost people group and the body of Christ. Mm. Yeah. As there a catalyst uh, in this and working with churches and you're trying to engage churches, have you seen a difference um, from from your past and, and now of the the working together with different mission organizations and then churches and the view that churches have of of organizations? Is there more of a partnership than there was in the past or what does it look like? <laughs> it's it's spotty. Yeah. Uh I was uh, I was at a gathering, finishing the task gathering that was hosted by Saddleback Church, and uh, Rick Warren, who's a good friend and a, a dear brother, he just spiritually convicts me almost every time I hear him say something. Yeah. He uh, he got up to the group as all of these uh, NGOs, all of these mission organization representatives were there. <clears throat> Here he was, pastor of a, a big church, and he looked out to him and he says, "You cannot use the church." if you do not love the church. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I like the Holy Spirit just shot an arrow into my heart because, you know, I can get frustrated with the traditional church in yeah. the West because it has so much to offer. I feel like they're just, uh, yeah. you know, they're just swimming in resources and, and great gospel teaching and so forth. And, and they need to be a channel, you know, of, that it flows through them to the ends of the earth. Yeah. And sometimes it doesn't. But uh, Rick's words were very convicting to me. And so we're very committed to loving the church uh, yeah. for all of its, um, you know, it's, it's history. I'm a, I'm a church historian by training, you know, I, I know the history and, and it's easier to fixate on the horrible things that have happened, you know, the, the, the bad things that have happened, but we have this, as you said, this plumb line of Jesus Christ yeah. that judges the church, just like it judges the world. And yep. uh, when we are, what we are to be, which is the body of Christ, mm -hmm. the living expression of Christ in the world, then uh, there's no greater organization, institution, organism in the yeah. world than the church. So yeah, it's 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 a mixed thing. There are a lot of churches that have really um, rallied behind xenophobia, a fear of outsiders, yep. fear of the strangers. Uh, <laughs> They want to. They see them as a threat, and their their job as the church is to fight off these uh, these people that are coming, you know, washing up on their shores. Uh, mm. There are others who say, "Oh my goodness, look at Acts seventeen twenty six and twenty seven. Acts seventeen twenty six and twenty seven says, "From one man God made all the peoples of the world, and He assigned their boundaries and their times. He did this so that they would perhaps reach out for Him and find Him." Yeah. Though he is not far from any one of us. Yeah. And at Global Gates, we often, we, we treat that uh, verse as sort of a touchstone because it's something that growing up, I didn't think much about, but realizing, you know, there's 65 million people on the move. Why are they on the move? Well, God determines yeah. their boundaries. He determines their times. And he did this so that they would reach out for him and find him. Yeah. And that's where we come in. And that's what we say to the churches, you know, God brought them here yeah. so that they would hear about Jesus from you yeah, and they would experience Jesus through your love and ministry to them. Yeah. And a lot of churches are waking up to that. They're seeing this not as a, a curse or the result of a failed uh, administrative policy on immigration, but rather as an opportunity to be a part of uh, reaching the very ends of the earth. 
yeah. uh, right here in our own backyard. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, you know, say that we must love the church and it's true. But, you know, I just uh, like to, to think that we're all the body of Christ. Right. And so we're all playing our part. Global Gates is playing the part in in, you know, the apostolic realm and, and reaching the least reach and catalyzing people and really helping equip the rest of the body for that work as well. And that there should be love on on both sides of saying, yeah. hey, we we all have a part to play and we're playing our part and let's do this together. And it's not, yeah. you know, organization after, you know, against organization, but we're just one body uh, as we're trying to seek uh, wherever there is uh, lost people and just say, hey, Jesus is for you. So, Amen. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, all of us have fallen short. There's not yeah. a this is not a perfect church among us, and if there was, they wouldn't let us in. Um, but you know, this—the idea that—I um, mean, there's a, there's over forty-five thousand denominations, I think, right now yeah. in the world. That's the World Christian Encyclopedia. Um, Ever every one of them at some point decided they had some distinctive that set them apart from the other yeah. forty-four thousand nine hundred ninety-nine. Uh, and the truth is that they also had one thing that they all had in common, and that was Christ in yep. us. Yeah. The only hope of really revealing God. And that's what the glory of God is, is, yeah. is revealing God as he really is. And we mm -hmm. see who he really is yeah. in the person of Christ. Yeah, that's great. Uh, just a couple questions at the end. One, if you could go back to your 21-year-old self, what advice would you give? <sighs> Probably, you know, I'd just gotten married at 21. <laughs> I married my 19-year-old bride. <laughs> I probably would have said, why did you wait so long? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we've been married now. There'll be 44 years this summer wow. and uh, four beautiful kids and one granddaughter. And uh, yeah, you know, she was a part of that, a part of that uh, unfolding of God's plan. Yeah. Uh, I tell people, uh, they say, where, where did you and your wife meet? And I tell them the story. It was actually the Sunday I had just come back from church camp. I'd been, I'd had a metanoia moment, yeah. you know, a come to Jesus moment. And, and um, I was called into the ministry and I walked down the aisle as a tradition in our Baptist church, walked down the aisle to surrender my life to a full-time Christian service. And in that same uh, Sunday, a uh, new family had arrived in town. He was the new uh, athletic director and football coach and his family walked down the other aisle and, and joined our church that Sunday. And I, met him and his kids and his oldest daughter was named Sonia. And, uh, you know, six years later, I married her <laughs> and, uh, people say, where did you meet your wife? I said, well, we, we met at the altar <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it's actually a true story. And I tell, especially young people, this who say, you know, I want to give my life to Jesus, but I'm scared. Yeah. I want to, I want to be on this great adventure, but I, I, I want to wait till I'm married first. And I tell him, I said, you know, your, your spouse may be waiting for you at the altar. Yeah. You need to get down there and get to the altar. That's where I met mm -hmm. my wife. And uh, so at 21, the adventure was just beginning. Uh, I think I would, if I knew then what I know now, <laughs> I might have turned it and run the other direction, scared to death, because I would not have imagined the the things that we would get to see and experience. Yeah. And um, I just praise God mm. for, for those years. <laughs> That's great. Uh, anything you've been reading or watching lately you could recommend? Oh boy. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm reading a bunch of, uh, I've got a whole series of things I'm reading on, uh, Islam that, um, Patricia Crone, Crone or Crona 
it's a Danish name, uh, has written some books really hard to get your hands on these days, but uh, uh, one called Hagarism and one called um, uh, The Meccan Trade Route. Uh, uh, it's it's sort of a, a incredibly dense uh, scholarly study of the role of Mecca in the rise of Islam, in which she basically reveals that uh, Mecca hardly existed at the time that Muhammad supposedly lived there and was a major uh, caravan leader and trader. So there was no trade through Mecca. And uh, it's really a lot of stuff that is sort of a, a what's happened in Christianity is the historical critical analysis yeah. of Christianity. It took place in the 19th, early 20th centuries. Uh, uh, Islam is now approaching that. Yeah. And it's a little different because <laughs> these uh, Muslim adherents will uh, sometimes threaten you and threaten your life uh, for even questioning. But it's long overdue. Yeah. And uh, so there's a, a new awakening to uh, historical critical analysis. Tom Holland has got some YouTube videos on this that are very revealing mm. about uh, the origins of Islam. It's not what has been taught. Mm. He said, it's, anytime you've got a story about the life of the prophet Muhammad, yeah. and you get more details, the farther you get away from the actual life of the prophet yeah. Muhammad in history, there's something wrong. Yeah. He said, when you go back to the first 170 years, there's literally no information whatsoever mm. about the life of the prophet Muhammad. And so uh, a lot of that's kind of interesting to me. Yeah. I think hopefully that it can lead to a new openness in the Muslim world to realize that uh, the Quran uh, is a multi-sourced document yeah. uh, and that there's a much, there's a lot more nuance to the origins of Islam than um and Muslims, or really most people in the world, have been led to believe over the years. So it's a fascinating field that I look forward to reading more about. Yeah. Jay Smith, of course, one of the Christian apologists here in the United States, has a whole series of videos on this. Mm -hmm. And I really commend him for his courageous work. <laughs> and was Mennonite missionary kid who just would not uh, keep his mouth shut. Uh, he's going to speak the truth and do it wow. in love. And I'm grateful for, for his courage. Yeah. That's great. Well, David, uh, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so thank you. Well, thank you, Josh. It's a pleasure to be with you. God bless you and our friends at All Nations, and may, uh, may your tribe increase. All right. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, it really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.